My Favorite Theorem, a math podcast where we ask mathematicians to tell us about their favorite theorems. I'm one of your hosts, Evelyn Lamb. I'm a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah, and this is your other host. Hi, I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida. How you doing, Evelyn? I'm all right. I had a really weird dream last night where I couldn't read numbers, and I was like trying to find the page numbers in this book, and like... I kept having to ask someone like, oh, is this 370? Because it like looked like 311 to me. I, for some reason, those are two of the numbers that like somehow, yeah, those numbers don't look the same. But yeah, it was so weird. And I, I woke up and I was like, I opened a book and I was like, okay, good. I can read numbers. Life is okay. But yeah, it was a bit disorienting. That's weird. <laughs> so how I, about I've you? I've never had anything like that. <laughs> no, how, well... I don't know. I was in California earlier this week, so I'm trying to readjust to Florida after what was really nice in California. It's just gruesomely hot here and gross. So, um, but anyway, enough about that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, today we're very happy to have Anil Venkatesh joining us. Hi, Anil. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Kevin. Yes, uh, I am an applied mathematician. I teach at a school called Ferris State University in Michigan, and I am also a musician, I play soccer, and I'm the lead content developer for a commercial video game. Oh, wow. And I, how I ran across your name is through the music connection because you sometimes um, give, uh, give talks at the joint math meetings and things like that. And I think I remember seeing one of your talks there, but I didn't know about the uh, game developing. What game is that? It's called Star Sonata, and I'll plug it maybe at the end of the episode, but it uh, actually okay. relates because the theorem I'm going to talk about, um, well, I ran across it in my development work, actually. Okay. Oh, cool. So let's get right to it. Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to talk about the Shapley value, which is uh, due to Lloyd Shapley. The paper came out in 1953. And there's a theorem in that paper. It did not come to be known as the Shapley theorem, because that's a different theorem. But it's, a, <laughs> okay. it's an amazing theorem. And I think the reason the theorem didn't gain that much um, like recognition is that the value that it um, kind of proves something about is what really took off. So uh, should I tell you a little bit about what the Shapley value is and why it's cool? Yeah, let's, okay. let, let's well, have it. So, I actually, I picked up this book that came out in 88, so quite a long time after the Shapley value was originally introduced. And this book is amazing. It's got like 15 chapters, and each chapter is a paper by some mathematician or economist talking about how they use the Shapley value. So it's just this thing that really caught on in a bunch of different disciplines. But it is an econ result, which is why I took a while to actually track it down once I came up with the math behind it. Um, right. So... So putting, putting this into context, 1953, people were thinking a lot about diplomacy. They were thinking about the Cold War or ensuing Cold War. And uh, so here's a great application of the Shapley value. So you have the United Nations. It's got, in the Security Council, five permanent members who can veto resolutions, and then 10 rotating members. So for a resolution to pass, I don't know if this is exactly how it works now, but at least when the paper was written, you needed nine out of 15 to vote in favor. That's still correct. And of those yep. nine, you needed all five of the, of the permanent members. So you can't have any of those vetoes. So you might ask, how powerful is it to have the veto? Can we quantify the negotiating strength of possessing a veto in this committee? 
Okay. 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 And yes, you can with the Shapley value, and it comes down. Well, do you want to have a hazard a guess? Like, how many times better is it to have a veto? Like a million. <laughs> it's a lot better. It's a lot better. I, I, you know, I didn't really have a frame of reference for guessing. It's about a hundred. Yeah, times. I, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, how much? A hundred. I was only off by yeah. four orders of magnitude. Okay. That's pretty. Yeah. Good. So, so yeah, not bad. The way the Shapley value um, carries this out is you imagine out of a hundred percent, let's apportion pieces of that to each of the fifteen members according to how much power they have in the committee. Okay. And so, if it was twenty percent to each of the permanent members, there wouldn't be any left for the remaining 10 rotating, right? In actuality, it's 19.6% to each of the five permanent members. Okay. And then that wow. last sliver gets apportioned 10 ways to the rotating members. Okay. So that's how I come up with so... roughly 100 times powerful, more powerful with the veto. Yeah. So okay. I will tell you how this value is computed, and I'll tell you about the theorem. But I'll give you one more example, which I thought was pretty neat and timely. So. <clears throat> Uh, so in the U.S., laws get made when the House of Representatives and the Senate both have bo bo both vote with a majority in favor of the bill, and then the president does not veto that bill. Yes. Or if mm -hmm. the president vetoes, then we need a two-thirds majority in both houses to right. to override that veto. So you could ask, um, well, if you think of it just as the House, the president, and the Senate, or the House, the Senate, and the president. How much of the negotiating power gets apportioned to each of those three bodies mm -hmm. when it comes mm -hmm. to finally creating a law? And if you apply the Shapley okay. value, you get ratios of five to five to two, which means the president alone has a one-sixth say in the creation of a law. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was, uh, when you you said that, I was thinking, um, I mean, if you do the Security Council one, the people with vetoes had almost one-fifth mm -hmm. each, mm -hmm. you know, like, so I was thinking maybe like being one third of the things that could veto it would be about a third for the president, but that seemed too high. Yeah. So if the if the, yeah. it was not possible to override the veto, then it would be a little right. different, right? Okay. Yes. Now, if you actually break this down on the individual basis, so you might think, okay, well, the house gets uh, five out of twelve of the power, but there are so many people in the house. So each individual person in the house doesn't have as much power, right? Yes. Uh, right. When it breaks down that way, so going individual representative, individual senator, and president, mm. the ratio goes like two to nine to three hundred fifty. Okay. <laughs> so the president yeah. actually has way more power than any one individual lawmaker. Well, but that makes over... sense, right? Yes, yeah. it does. And sure. so, yeah, the, the great thing about the Shapley value is that. Uh, it's not telling you things you don't know exactly, but it's quantifying things. So we, we know precisely what the, uh, the, the balance of power is. Right. Of course, right. Of course you've got to ask, okay, so this sounds like a, like a fun trick, but how is it done anyway? And yeah. the, um, the principle behind the Shapley value is like, it's just a, it's a beautiful, it's beautiful in its simplicity. The theory is this, and it actually, when I tell you this, it's going to remind you of a lemma from, that's already been on this podcast. Okay. Yes. Uh, more than one, actually. There's this just a very standard kind of technique. So imagine all, right. all the possible orderings of voters. So suppose they come in one at a time and mm -hmm. cast their vote. Mm -hmm. Under how many of these arrangements is a particular person casting the pivotal vote? The more, more frequently, the more arrangements in which person A casts the pivotal vote, the more power person A is allotted. That's okay. it. 
So we actually just take an average over all possible orderings of votes and basically count up however many of those orderings involve a particular person casting the pivotal vote. And that's how we, okay. that's how we derive this breakdown of, of power. So this is a lot like having everyone at a vertex and looking at symmetries mm -hmm. of this object, which is kind of reminding me of Mohammed Omar's mm -hmm. episode about Burnside's Lemma. I assume Precisely. that's the one that you were that's, yes, thinking that, that's about. That's the, the one I was thinking about. Uh, but uh -huh. you said another one as well. The other one hasn't been on this podcast yet. And actually, oh, okay. I, I could have talked about this one instead. But uh, the Cohen-Lenstra heuristics for... Um, the frequency of ideal class groups of hmm. imaginary quadratic extensions uh, also involves an idea. Now, this one gets a little deeper, but essentially, if you dig into the Shapley value, you notice that the bigger the group is, um, the less power each person has in it. And yeah, so and there, there are various other twists you can ask using the Shapley value. So in the Cohen-Lenstra heuristics, you essentially uh, divide by the automorphisms of a group. You, you weight things inversely by the number of automorphisms they have. Uh, anyway, that one also evoked, because you take sort of an average across all the groups of the same size. So mm -hmm. it's just a lot of kind of, um, I'm not claiming that there's some kind of like categorical equivalence between the Cohen-Lenstra heuristics mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. Shapley value, but mm -hmm. this idea of like averaging over an entire space uh, comes up in a bunch of different branches of mathematics. Sure. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, so we've got the Shapley value mm. now, and what is the theorem? The theorem, and this is what makes it all really pop. This is, I, the theorem is why people, why the Shapley value is so uh, like ubiquitous. There is no other logical apportionment of 100% than the Shapley values algorithm. Oh, okay. There is no other sensible way to quantify the power of a person in a committee. Interesting. What, what's the definition of sensible? I'll give it to you. And, okay. and when you hear the, the, like, this is how weak the, the assumptions are that already yeah. give you this theorem. That's why it's amazing. Sure. Efficiency. Mm -hmm. You must apportion all 100%. Okay. Of course. Yeah. Symmetry. If you rename the people, but you don't change their voting, uh, like, rules. Sure. The Shapley value doesn't, is not affected by that kind of game. Okay, sure. Null player. If a person has no voting power at all, they get 0%. All right. Obviously. Uh, yeah. And finally, additivity. That one takes a little bit more thinking about, but it's nothing crazy. It's just saying, like, if there's two different votes happening, then your power in the total situation is the sum of your power in the one vote and your power in the other vote. It's like, if there's more than one game being played, basically, mm -hmm. uh, Shapley, the Shapley value is additive over those games. Okay. Right. So... That's, that's uh, the weirdest one, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I looked at it, I thought a little bit about what to say, and then honestly, if you dig into it, you realize it's just like not saying anything amazing. It's just like, yeah. it, you have to think about this. The Shapley value, it's like a function, right? So we're working mm -hmm. in the space of functions, and, and weird things can happen there. So this right. is just asserting you don't have any like really wild and woolly functions. We're not considering mm -hmm. those. Mm -hmm. So, okay. yeah. Uh, yeah, so you just have these assumptions, and then there's... Um, there's only one. And the way they prove it is by construction. They, they basically write down a basis of functions, and they, they, they write down a formula using that basis, and there can only be one because it's from a basis. And uh, then they prove that that formula has the properties desired. <laughs> 
Okay. It's a really short paper. It's like a 10-page paper with four references. It's amazing. Uh, you said this is the uh, 1953, 1953 paper, paper by yeah, by Shapley. Shapley. And what, yeah. Was there another author, too, nope. or just? Nope. Okay. Shapley co uh, collaborated with many people on related projects, but the original paper was just by him. <laughs> yeah. So I, I assume people have maybe looked at Shapley values of voters, you know, individual voters, like in the U.S. or in an individual state or, or local election. Uh, we're recording this in election season yeah. a little bit before Can't the midterm election. So, <laughs> <laughs> but um, how? Yeah, I, I guess. Oh, I guess actually that wouldn't be that interesting because it would just be. I mean, within a state or something, but I guess the Shapley value of someone in one state versus another state might be a fairly interesting question. Oh, yes, but even the Shapley value uh, for one person in a certain district or another district, like this gets into um, gerrymandering for yeah, sure. Right. I don't know to what extent people have thought about the Shapley value applied oh. in this way. I imagine they have, mm -hmm. although I haven't, yeah. I haven't personally seen it mentioned or any like thing that looks like it in the gerrymandering math groups that have been doing their work? No, but, this, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I've been yeah. working with them a little bit, too. I mean, not really. And, yeah. um, of course, this sort of gets to things like, you know, the, the Senate is sort of fundamentally undemocratic. Um, right. You know, yes. You know, a, 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 a senator, I mean, the individual senators kind of have a lot of power, but, you know, the, the voters yeah. in Wyoming have a lot more, you know, right. their vote counts okay. more than, than a voter in, say, Florida. Or the vo voter in Utah yeah. versus voter in Florida. Right. But I'm, I'm thinking yeah. about within a specific state, if you look mm -hmm. at the different districts. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I read a little bit about this, and I see that, you know, they're, they're trying to resolve all these kind of the tension between um, the ability to cast a pivotal vote and the ability to be grouped with people who are like-minded. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. It seems like... I, I wonder whether there's some extent to which they're inventing the, reinventing the wheel. And Maybe. we already have a way to quantify the ability to cast a pivotal vote. Like it's, there's only one way to do it. Mm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not super informed on that, but I, it feels like it would apply. Yeah. Yeah. So w what drew you to this theorem? This, I mean, so, okay, so fun fact, um, Anil and I actually had the same PhD advisor, albeit a couple of decades apart. Um, and and neither, neither of us works in this area, really. But uh, uh, so, so, yeah, so, so what, what drew you to this? Well, that's why I mentioned my game development uh, background. So this uh, game, Star Sonata, is one of those massively multiplayer online role-playing games. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, it was uh, created back in 2004 when World of Warcraft had just started and the, basically the genre of game had just cr been created. So uh, that's, that's why... The game started the way it did, but it's kind of just like an indie game that stuck around and had its kind of loyal followers since then. And uh, I also played the game myself, but several years ago, I just kind of got involved on the development side. Um, I think initially they wanted, well, I was kind of upset as a player that I felt they put some stuff in the game that didn't work that well. So I said, listen, why don't you just like bring me on as a volunteer and I'll do quality <laughs> assurance for you. But after some time, I started just kind of finding a a niche for myself in the development team because I have these like quantitative skills that uh, no one else on the team really had that background in. So uh, a little later, I also noticed that I actually had pretty decent managing skills. So here I am. I'm now basically managing the developers of the game. Mm -hmm. And one of my 
one of my colleagues there asked me an interesting question, and he was kind of wrestling with it in a spreadsheet, and he didn't know how to do it. So the question is this. Suppose you're, you're going to let the player have like six pieces of equipment. And each piece of equipment, let's say it increases their power in the game by a percent. Power could be like, you know, your ability to kill monsters or something. Yeah. So the thing is, each piece of equipment multiplicatively increases your power. So your overall power is given by some product, let's say 1 plus A times 1 plus B times 1 plus C and so on. Mm -hmm. One letter for each piece of equipment. So you write down this product, you have to use the distributive property to work out the, the final answer. Sure. And it looks like 1 plus the sum of those letters plus mm -hmm. a bunch of cross terms. The symmetric functions, right, yeah. Yes, exactly. So what his question was, was, okay, now that we're carrying all six of these pieces of equipment, how much of that total power is due to each piece of equipment? Hmm. Okay. How much did each item contribute to the overall power of the player? The reason we want to know this is if we create a new piece of equipment that the player can obtain, and we put that in, and then suddenly we discover, like, everyone in the game is all just using that. That's not good game design. It's boring, right. right? We want there to be some variety. So we need to know a way to quantify ahead of time whether that will happen. Mm -hmm. Whether a new, a new thing in the game is going to just become the only thing anyone cares about. And they'll issue all alternatives. So he asked me basically, how can I quantify whether this will happen? <laughs> yeah. And I thought about it. And as you can tell, what this is asking about is the Shapley value in a special case where all the actors contribute multiplicatively to the, to the total. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that at the time because I'd never learned about the Shapley value. I didn't really learn much econ. Sure. Uh, so I just derived it, as it turns out, independently in this, in this special case. Uh, and it works out in a very beautiful formula involving essentially the harmonic means of all those letters. So oh, okay. sums, uh, reciprocals of sums of reciprocals. Uh, the idea there, and I mean, I can give a real simple example. Like, suppose you have two items. One of them increases your power by 20%, and one increases by 30%. So your overall power is 1.2 times 1.3. Mm -hmm. So what does that get to? 1.56. Of that 56% of that increase, 20% goes to the one item, 30 goes to the other, but 6% is left over. And how should that be apportioned? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, if you think about it, you might think, well, okay, the 30% should get the lion's share. And you, yeah, maybe, maybe so, maybe so. But then there's a competing idea. Because that 30% was pretty big, the 20%'s effect is amplified. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's not, there's not like an immediately obvious way to split it, but you can kind of do it in a principled fashion. So... Once I wrote this down, you know, I gave it to my colleague. He implemented it. It improved our ability to make the game fun. Uh, but then I also started wondering. I was like, look, this is, this is nice and all, but I, someone must have thought of this before, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't actually remember now how I came across it, whether I just found it or somebody sent it to me. But one way or another, I found the Shapley value on Wikipedia. I read about it, and I, you know, immediately recognized it as the generalization of what I'd done. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and, and this seems like the kind of thing that would come up in a lot of different settings, too. A friend of mine one time um, was talking about a problem where, you know, they had sold more units and also increased the price or something. And like, you know, how do you allocate the value of the increased unit sales versus the increased price mm -hmm. or something, which might, might be a, a slightly different. The Shapley value might not no, apply no, completely there. there but, yeah, that's oh, called okay. the Alman Shapley Pricing rule. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it, it, this questions of fair division and cost allocation are definitely applications of the Shapley value. So yeah. <laughs> Neat. Very cool. Absolutely. Thanks. So. Yeah. What have you, uh, you know, the other fun part of this podcast is that we ask our guests to pair their theorem with something. What have you chosen to, to pair this with? Well, like many of your guests, I really uh, struggled with this question. And Good. the first thing I thought of, which won't be my choice, was a pie. Because mm. you have yeah. to, like, you know, fairly divide the pie. I told this to one of my friends, and I explained what the Shapley value was. And she was like, no, that's, that's a terrible idea, because you want to divide the pie equally. But the Shapley value <laughs> is this prescription for dividing unequally, but according to some other principle. Mm -hmm. So it won't be a pie. So I actually decided this morning, it's going, I'm going to pair it with a nice restaurant you go to with your friends, but then they don't let you split the bill. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you have to figure out mm -hmm. what numbers to write on the back of the receipt for them to yeah. <laughs> run your credit cards. or hmm. Yeah, or for the added challenge, you could decide, like, how can you, like, given the available cash in each person's wallet, um, <laughs> can you <laughs> do that? Oh, don't even get me started. <laughs> well, this, this is the problem, right? Nobody has cash. So when you're trying to figure out how to, how to split the bill, I mean, the, the, people think that mathematicians are really good at this kind of thing. And in my mm. experience, when you go to a seminar dinner or whatever, uh, nobody can figure out how to split the bill. If I'm yeah. out with a bunch of people and we have to split a bill, let it not be mathematicians. That's right. what I say. Yeah. <laughs> because some of them be want to be else. completely exact. And, and you know, so, okay, yeah. each person ordered a certain thing and it costs this much and you pay that mm -hmm. and you divide the tip proportionally and all this stuff. Whereas I'm, I'm more, you know, especially the older I get, the, the, the sort of less I care about five or ten dollars one way or the other. Yeah. You know, just say, well, yeah. I find it's good if I go out with a bunch of people who are kind of scared of math because then mm. they just let me do it. I, you know, I become sure. an elephant. Benevolent dictator of the situation. Right. That tends to happen to me too. Yeah. yeah. So, um, do you? I don't remember where. What city Ferris State is in? Well, um, it's in a town of Big Rapids, which is a little ways okay. north of Grand Rapids, which is a little bit more well known. Slightly yes. grander. Great. So you're yes. you're the the slightly so like, lesser right, rapids. You're, you're, there you're, are at least five rapids in Michigan, like five different places named something rapids. Sure. Okay. So, you, so do you have a Big Rapids restaurant in mind for this pairing? You know, they're all really nice about splitting the bills there. So I was thinking something oh. maybe in New York City or Boston. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. College towns are pretty good about this. In fact, they'll just yeah. they'll let everybody hand, they'll, they'll let you hand them five cards and they'll just deal with it. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Very nice. So your rapids are big, but Grand Rapids rapids are grand. They're much grander. They're much yes. grander. Right. Yeah. Don't get me started about elk rapids. I don't know how to compare that to the other two. Elk rapids. Yeah, yeah. Big elk and grand. <laughs> yeah. Not yeah. clear what order those go in. It's un unclear. <laughs> yeah. Do you have, I guess Iowa's got the cedar rapids. True, yes. Yes. I don't remember the other two rapids, but I know I identified them at some point. <laughs> Mm -hmm. right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. It was great. Yeah, yeah this was I fun. really, I, yeah, I learned something new today for sure. Yeah, math and a civics lesson, right? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody go vote, although this episode will already be out, but get ready to vote in the next election. <laughs> yeah, well, it's never ending, right? I mean, as soon as one election's over, they start talking about the next one, so. Yeah. Right. So thanks, Anil. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lee. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are
are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Wen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at Nivik that's Kevin spelled backwards followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M, that's at my favorite theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics.